So we've been looking at uh, Paul's uh, second letter uh, to the church in Corinth, and today we're up to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 uh, through chapter 4, verse 6. That text is printed in the bulletin and also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so this is a complicated passage. Lots of images. Uh, uh, looking at looking at Christ. Looking at uh, uh, looking for the light of the glory of His face. Uh, seeing uh, veils being removed, and what is a you know what is a, a heart that's veiled, and all of those sorts of things. But let me let me distill this down for you. To, to, to the central thing that this text is about. It's about change. It's about transformation. That's what it's about. It's about how do people change. That's the ultimate kind of kernel of, of things that, that Paul is getting at here, right? And so uh, one, one of the things that is so important about that is, I, I, I said this at the early service, and anytime you, you say something that's a superlative, you know, superlative, most, you know, that sort of thing, people tend not to listen because we have so many things at advertising and other messages at us that are so extreme that we fail to listen any longer to anything that says to us, this is the most important thing. I'm about to tell you, this is the most important thing. And the most important thing is you need to change. Let me say that again. The most important thing is you need to change. Now, everybody likes change. But when we think of change and we think of what what God is doing about changing, what we think of is, God, change my circumstances, change my situation, change uh, my husband, who is often a jerk, Uh, change my boss, who is a jerk, change, uh, uh, change my uh, um, children not to irritate me so much, uh, change my boyfriend to be kinder to me, 
change my situation such that I have a boyfriend, right? Um, change my calculus teacher into someone who will give me a better grade, right? So we, 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 we all understand what change is about, but we almost never say, you know, what needs to happen here? And the, the thing that's got to happen is I have to change. Listen, some of you drink too much. Some of you uh, gossip too much. Some of you criticize too much. Some of you are discouraged too much. Some of you are too fearful. Some of you are too angry. You need to change. You need to change. And so the so the, the the reality of that is I know that's a that's a direct hard message and you probably woke up on this chilly spring morning with a nose full of pollen and uh, uh, thinking if you can just hang on for one more week for for most of you you get a spring break and oh you can catch your breath and now you come to church and all you want to hear at church is somebody to tell you you're okay I'm okay but what you're hearing this morning from the very word of God is it's time to change. Oh, I don't have the energy for that. I don't want to hear that. Um, the, the, the most grace-filled conversation uh, I ever had, written by a man who wrote, remember a few years ago, some of you have been around a long time, we gave away those books, 31 Days of Grace. Do you remember that? What a great book it was. The best conversation I ever had uh, for uh, about my life was with the man who wrote that book. It was in the spring of 1984, standing outside the uh, education building at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's a professor, uh, <clears throat> and uh, for years after that, he was the president of Covenant Seminary, and then after that, he was the head of our, our missions agency. So a big, big deal. He's pretty. He talked me into Mary and Marty. <laughs> yeah. Um, Great man. Uh, um, And so because he was a great man, he was one of the kindest, gentlest, had probably one of the best grasps on the gospel of anybody uh, at my seminary. And so I went to him uh, one day because I was I was taking 18 hours credit hours. I was working uh, 25 hours a week on the seminary maintenance crew. Now, let me tell you a little bit about that. You know, you should always pray for people that do maintenance because you never call somebody in maintenance to say, look, our air conditioner is working perfectly. Observe. (laughs) Right. Our our sink is flowing wonderfully. Come and look. Right. You you only get called when you're on the maintenance crew when something's broken. And you only get called in, in a seminary environment uh, by people who are angry, impatient, and judgmental. Pastors in training. Um, and so this is a very discouraging job. And then on top of that, I was a youth pastor at a church plant that met in a windowless warehouse over the top of a landfill. With a bunch of kids whose parents were pastors and seminary professors who were the hardest cases imaginable. 
And add to that, I had no clue what I was doing. So discouraged. And I'm talking to him and just saying, everything is bad, 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 all bad, 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 bad. Did I say it was bad? It's bad. And so I'm thinking he's going to tell me, Jesus loves you, brother. Everything's going to be just fine. And he put his arm around me and very kindly said, unless you change, you are going to be a miserable failure in ministry and you're going to be the wreck of a lot of souls. Have a great day. <laughs> um, Marty remembers that day well uh, because I came home, walked in the door to eat lunch, and I said, pack your bags, we're leaving, we're done. Uh, this was a mistake. I don't know what we're doing here. I've had enough. And as she said to me, what the conversation that we've had about 30 times in our uh, years of marriage, and that is, every time you get discouraged, am I going to have to move? And I'm like, yes, yes, you are, because... <laughs> That's that's what you signed up for when you married me. Um, now, that to some of you, you may think that's a terrible way to handle people. That's a terrible thing. And there are times and places where uh, laying that on someone is, is a big mistake. But you know what? I needed that. I needed to be told that. Those, those were, you know, the, the Bible says, the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Those were faithful wounds. So what we're reading in today's text is Paul's assertion to the church in Corinth about how change happens. The change that we are dying for how it occurs in our hearts and our lives. And so there are two areas that he addresses for us about how change happens. One is about how these veils that he mentions, how they get removed. And the other one is how we get transformed into the same image, that is the image of Jesus Christ, from one degree to another. So those are the two main areas that he addresses here about how the gospel changes us. And listen, I want you to understand something that that the promise of God to you this morning is to to not leave you unchanged. Okay? He's not going to leave you unchanged. He's going to do his work and we have the very promise of God in Jesus Christ that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So we can look forward to that. We can trust that, but we also uh, as we as we look at that, we need to ask the question and we need to look to see practically day to day how this is going to happen. Right. So how in the world, then, are we going to get the veils removed from the people we know and love that Paul mentions a number of times here that they're that their hearts are veils, that he speaks of uh, the Old Testament uh, the folks who are still locked in uh, kind of a legal righteousness that whenever the, the law is read, whenever the old covenant is read, they are uh, unable to hear and to see Jesus Christ in that or or the unbelievers who are uh, unable to believe the gospel because their hearts have been veiled. 
Because he says, you know, how in the world are we going to get these veils removed? After all, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? So how are we going to do this? Well, the first thing is, he says in verse 5, is that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, so basically, this is a pretty simple and straightforward thing. What he, what he's, what he's saying to us is all you got to do is hold up for people a, a, a faithful verbal witness of who Jesus Christ is as Lord, uh, and serve them and pray that as you do that, that God would remove the veil, right? That's, that's all you got to do. It's not hard. Which you know, when I tell you something's not hard, you know what's coming next. Uh, it is hard. It's, this is profoundly hard in many ways because, because the fact of the matter is, you know, if it's left up to me to hold up to people a faithful picture of Jesus and then to serve them, right, I, I might fail, right? For instance, I just had a, a conversation with a dad out in the, um, um, uh, gallery in between services. And we were talking about something I said at the early service. Cause one of the things I said at the early service is moms holding up a faithful picture of Jesus Christ to your kids, serving them as you scream at them. <laughs> and you think, how are they ever going to have a sense of G and, and maybe you're not screaming outwardly. Maybe you're screaming inwardly, the inward scream. Those are the best. They cause strokes by the way. Uh, <laughs> but the fact is, as you're doing that and you think, how am I holding up a faithful picture to Jesus Christ if in, in, in the, on the way to, to church this morning, somebody had to get the last word on whose makeup was the best or whose shoes were the nicest or whose outfit was the best or, 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 or whatever. The fact is, how is that ever going to happen and how are they going to see Jesus? But not only how are they going to see Jesus, I'm not serving them, Right? So how is this going to work out? Well, what Paul says to us here is that, that as we do this, as we failingly and as we as we have this work going on in us, that the same power that created light in the first place gives light to the dark human heart now so that Christ will be seen for who he really is. That is how you became, became a Christian. Ultimately, you may not you may not know all the ins and outs, but the way you came to believe was that Jesus Christ came to you, you the, the gospel become unveiled to you, and suddenly Jesus became attractive. Suddenly the light of the glory of God was very clear to you. And the sacrifice of Christ, the atoning work that he's done for you, Jesus Christ became attractive to you and drew you to him. You saw him. You heard him. You believed him. And so that veil that kept you from seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus suddenly gets removed. And you're able to believe him. And as you're able to believe him, he changes you, right? So uh, this is how you, uh, uh, those you love will become Christians. You give them a faithful portrait of Jesus and God gives them eyes to see. Now, what you have to see about this is this, this is a good formula. It's a true formula. I, and, and, and it is an absolute biblical formula, but it is so hard. It's really hard. And I'll tell you why. Because when when Paul says that uh, what he's about here is sharing, speaking, uh, giving a verbal witness about the glory of Jesus Christ, he says, we are also your servants. 
And what does he mean by servants? Well, he goes on in verse 10 uh, uh, in chapter 4 to say that we always carry about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So what he's saying there is you've got to die. You've got to die. That that serving here means that we set our, uh, uh, in many ways, ourselves on, on uh, aside for the sake of the other. That what we do is we are willing in love to sacrifice our time, energy uh, for another. And frankly, that's, um, who wants to hear that? Right? It, this just sounds like a lot of church talk. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus loves you. Go and love other people. And so what happens to that? What happens when we hear that and we, we kind of conflate the gospel down to that? Then what, what happens to us then is, uh, one, one uh, of two things. Next slide. So what happens to us is we, we kind of lose the gospel. I've been reading a book by this woman, Fleming Rutledge. Can't recommend it. Uh, it was the uh, Christian book of the year last year with Christianity Today. None of you buy it. None of you read it. Uh, it's um, uh, it's about that thick. And it's one of these kind of books where on the bottom of every page, there's that much footnotes. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's a profound book. Uh, it's it's too liberal uh, and it's got some things wrong in it. So don't read it. I'm reading it because uh, I like to read books that I tell other people not to read. Okay? Uh, and I, as I'm sorting through this book, uh, uh, what I realize about this is, is here is a, a woman, pastor, who loves her church and sees that her church is no longer taking the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ seriously. And she's written a book about that. So she addressed most of what she writes in the book is addressed to people in mainline churches. Maybe that's why I like it because I can, you know, lob some grenades over there because we're not a mainline church. We're not main anything, you know, we're, we're not main anything anyway. So she says that in the mainline churches and this parentheses is what I would say. And I would add in many others as well. There's no lack of exhortation to a life worthy of the calling to which we were called. Countless sermons are built around the phrase, we're called to be more. And she uh, uses inclusive, uh, uh, more merciful, uh, all of those sorts of things. And, and what you need to understand about this is liberal theology, bear with me, more liberal theology than we are, uh, tends to see sin as a corporate and societal thing. Conservatives see, tend to see sin as more of an individual moral thing. The Bible sees it as both. Okay? It views, it views sin. There's certainly corporate responsibility uh, 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 that we have to repent of. There's plenty in the Old Testament prophets that's, that's very corporate about the people of God and their sin. And there's certainly plenty of, of commandments about our own moral failing uh, before the Lord. And so, so what happens often in, in conservative churches and in not so conservative churches is that, that what you hear is you need to change and, and get about the business of changing. And so, so what happens is there's a core group in every church. There's a group of people in every church who have willpower. 
It's a tiny group. Uh, and they have willpower that enables them to demonstrate their resolution to change to a handful of people in a quiet, sort of secretive way. Now, now they're changing. They're, they appear to be changing outwardly. But really, the kind of change that we need to happen internally is not happening. And frankly, for many of us, we'd settle for that. Because if you would just behave better, my life would get better. I'll take that. I, I, I might even suit me if you stop drinking, whether you ever believe Jesus or not, because your drinking is such a hindrance to me in your in my life with you. You know, we, we might just we might just settle for that when when in reality, what needs to happen is something more dramatic. Right. So what she says is so we're always called to be more of something or we're called to be less of something. But what's often missing from such ex- exhortations is the proclamation of the one who is actually doing the calling, who has ratified our calling in his own blood, and who has entered in our life in order to defeat from inside human nature the work of our enemy. And that's what we're talking about. When Paul uses this language to talk about seeing Jesus, seeing the glory, and being transformed from one degree to another is the very work of God in us by seeing Jesus Christ in his glory, sacrifice, bleeding, naked, outside the city, bearing my shame, bearing my sin, not even given even any hint of human dignity, much less divine dignity, and he did that for me. That that's the kernel in my heart and life where I see the work of Jesus to begin to change me. To make me more and more into his image. By degree, slowly but surely, that's what's happening. Now, the, how does how does this happen? The next slide. Um, so, well, what, what, what will happen to us and the way this will work and that it will not just be simply a matter of, of willpower, but it'll be something dramatic, spiritual, eternal, and magnificent is if this is true of us. Let me read to you again what uh, verses 14 through 18 says. But their minds were, were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how does this change happen? What What is happening here? Because he, he, he talks about the veil, and then the next thing you know, he's talking about somehow or other, we turn to the Lord and we see him, and we're being transformed, and it has something to do with freedom. Well, uh, bear with me with this. What the people saw, by and large, is they looked through this this veil was a kind of law that enslaved them rather than freed them. So in other words, what they think is happening here is that the pathway to change, the pathway to the work of Jesus Christ in my life is really just a burden. It's just a big burden, right? Uh, and, and so what happens to us often is we, we mistake that there's nothing wrong with hearing God's standard. There's nothing wrong with seeing the holiness of God and hearing it proclaimed to us. The problem comes when we take that, the standard, and we make that the good news. 
rather than what the good news is, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for those who fail to meet that standard, right? So what the people saw, by and large, as they looked through this veil, was a kind of law that enslaved them rather than freed them. They interpreted the law as commandments of God loaded on them from outside without any spiritual transforming power inside of them to give them the desire to do the commandments, and that's the meaning of slavery. Slavery is when you get commandments, you, just, you don't have any choice. You get told from the outside uh, what, that, what, that you don't want to do on the inside. The result is either rebellion or legalism. You can say, I reject the burden of your commandments. Um, Francis Schaeffer says that the explosion that happened in America in the 60s and 70s was a result of children who were raised in the 50s with the commandments with the standard, but not the grace, not, not the word of Jesus Christ that uh, has, has atoned for us. So <clears throat> slavery is when you get the commandments from outside that you don't want to do on the inside. The result is either rebellion or legalism. You can say, I reject the burden of your commandments, or you can say, I will try to measure up with external compliance, when inside there's no real delight in the commandments, no real want to. That's slavery. And the antidote to that kind of slavery is the internal transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. This is what the new covenant's all about, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out so that we love the law of God. Why is that? So Paul says in verse 17 that the reason this enslaving veil is taken away when we turn to the Lord is that the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The reason the spirit gives freedom is that the spirit gives internal transformation that gives us the desires to do what God wills for us to do. Freedom is wanting to do what you are commanded by God to do. That, that last sentence right there, by the way, is you should ponder that. Because we live in a culture that demands freedom. But but they think freedom means doing what you want to do. What the scriptures tell us is, is freedom is wanting to do what you're commanded by God to do. Next slide. So so what this all comes to us as we look at Jesus Christ, as we see him, as we turn to him. as as it, 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 And one of the principles that comes from this is by looking at Christ... By seeing him with unveiled faces, we see his glory. We see his sacrifice. We, we see his work. And as we see that, he changes us more and more into his image. Now, you hear that and you think, that is, that is the dumbest thing ever because <clears throat> that doesn't make any sense to me. How can looking at something change you into that thing? <clears throat> and I thought about that this morning coming to church as, what what would it be like if everybody walked in here this morning and you all looked like what you spent the most of the week looking at? Wouldn't that be awesome? There'd be some big dollar signs in here. Uh, there'd be some big cheeseburgers in here. Uh, there'd be some big ice cream cones in here. Uh, and there'd be some other things in here, Right? How does how do you, how does looking at someone change you into that? <clears throat> well, there, one of the things that I love about West End Presbyterian Church is the fact that we have many families in this congregation 
who have followed the Lord's call on their lives to adopt. They adopt other kids. And one of the things that is so wonderful for me as I've gotten older and I don't have kids, so I don't have a lot of skin in the game, so I can take a few steps back and observe children without a lot of care one way or the other. Because I don't have little kids anymore. I have big kids. And so I watch the little kids in a room run around. And you know what? It doesn't take long. You can tell who they belong to. You can tell. Now, now part of that is there's a genetic uh, predisposition there where they start to look a lot like, you know, their mom or their dad. Because there's the genes at work there, so they look like that. But what's fascinating is, is to see a kid who's adopted, who has no genetic connection whatsoever to their parents, and they start acting like their mom or their dad. How does that happen? How do they start doing the same mannerisms, using the same language? Acting the same way. Why is that? Because they're looking at this parent. And as they're looking at this parent. And loving this parent. And having this parent love them. They begin to become like that person they're looking at. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When we see Jesus Christ. When we see his sacrifice. When we see his, his blood shed for us. When we see the work that he has done for us. And we look at that. Then what happens to us is. We change. We become what we observe. We become what we look at. Now, now, one of the things that you may you may miss in that is you may think, well, how does that happen? Well, the way it happens is we have the witness of Jesus Christ to us in the scriptures where he is clearly portrayed to us as crucified and risen, ascended into heaven. We see him uh, clearly portrayed uh, to us. Uh, in the scriptures, we also see him clearly portrayed to us in the sacrament. We see the bread. We see the cup. We hold it. We taste it. And what does that say to us? We proclaim the Lord's death. We see his atoning work. It's another place an op- another opportunity for us together to see the Lord. But that's not all. One of the things that is uh, wonderful to me is that we uh, have the opportunity uh, in this worship space to see each other. Some of you, when you're particularly critical, will say this worship space is so distracting. Why is it distracting? Because I see you. I see you. I see what you're wearing. I see how poorly behaved your children are. I, I, I see those shoes. I see that new outfit. I see that new hairdo. And it distracts me. What I see and what we facilitate by seeing one another is I see the work of Jesus in you. I see a sinner saved by grace. I, I see someone who was on the pathway to death who now has new life because of Christ. It gives us opportunities to see. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, we have yet again a place where Jesus is held up to us for us to see him and for that to be an opportunity for us to be changed. 